How will the new round of redistricting go? With late census numbers, courts no longer policing partisan gerrymanders, and a weakened Voting Rights Act? Will redistricting cost Democrats control of the U.S. House? How will redistricting commissions fit into the rushed process? On Season 3, Episode 1 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with Stanford Law and Political Science Professor Nate Persley. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and of the Election Law blog. This blog has been on a long hiatus, but I'm very pleased to bring it back for a new season three of the podcast. My first guest on the podcast is Nate Persley. Nate is the McClatchy Professor of Law and Political Science at Stanford Law School. He's been a registering master, an expert for courts. He's deeply involved in the process of drawing district lines, along with all of the other expertise that he has on issues like social media disinformation. Nate and I sat down in mid-August to talk about what the redistricting landscape is going to look like and why this redistricting season is likely to be one like no other. Welcome back to the podcast, Nate. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are a law professor, a political scientist, a redistricting master, and I thought there's no one better to kick off the new third season of the ELB podcast uh, than someone with your unique knowledge set. And it also seems to me that this will be a redistricting season like none other in our lifetimes. Uh, You've got the first election season, uh, redistricting season, without uh, the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act in place. It's the first one where partisan gerrymandering is certainly non-justiciable in federal courts. It's the first one since the Evanwell case, where we've got the one person, one vote issue. It's really late because we've got the census. And so I thought, this seems like it's a huge mess and nobody's paying attention. And so I thought we could use this podcast to kind of unpack some of that. So let me just start by asking you, and we can work through each of these, uh, how do you see the upcoming redistricting process? Well, like you said, there are a lot of features of this redistricting process which are unprecedented. And um, uh, notably the change in the legal landscape that you mentioned Also, the fact that it is going to be more compressed than at any time in in certainly recent history. And that's because of the late arrival of census data. That is both, you know, cardiovascularly important for me as well as um, legally, because you're going to have the the system is going to be put under great stress. um, And how courts respond to this rush process is a bit of a a question mark. And so so that that rush intense process allows for a lot of variation in the way we've sort of practiced redistricting before. Add to that, I mean there, there are these unprecedented legal terrain but but we remember this is all happening against the backdrop of uh, incredible partisan polarization in the United States, active disinformation in all spheres, uh, and the fact that the fate of who controls the U.S. House of Representatives hangs in the balance. And so you have all of these sort of stresses on the system at a time when we really (laughs) ought not have to bear them because we have enough stresses on the system already, whether the electoral system generally or political constitutional system as well. And so I I am concerned about um, how this redistricting process is unfolding. But one thing we learn every 10 years, it's very hard to predict what the themes are going to be and what the sort of intense outcomes are going to be as well. 
All right, well, let's take these one at a time. And, and uh, you know, you can give me your stress meter from zero to 10 on each one of these. Uh, so um, the rushed process. So what is this going to mean in terms of, say, the ability of uh, citizens to participate in the process, the ability of legislators to do things behind closed doors, the ability of courts to act in time for the next redistricting cycle? So how does time figure into this? And, and maybe speak more generally about how the whole census is done uh, and how it was done this time and how that might make uh, some changes. So let, let's just start with sort of the changing institutional dynamics for this redistricting season. First is you have an unprecedented number of states that are using commissions. Um, now, there are commissions and there are commissions, right? It's not just because somebody calls an institution a commission doesn't mean it's nonpartisan or public serving and the like, but some of them genuinely are. And so you have several states that had not had commissions before, like Michigan, like uh, New York, even though it's advisory, uh, Utah has an advisory commission, and Virginia. And so these are new institutions and how they work you know, is important. And, and that's relevant to your question with respect to public input, because those types of institutions often foster, you know, have a different approach to public input where it actually makes a difference sometimes. And that's going to be a rushed process run by a lot of novices, right? People who haven't done this, done this before. In addition, you have split control of the redistricting process in many of the battleground states places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that previously had been ripe for gerrymandering. Yes, it is still the case that Republicans have an uh, advantage in the redistricting process. They control states like Florida and, and Texas and other, and North Carolina because of the, the legislature, the, the governor doesn't play a role there. Uh, but there are sort of these other states where, where they don't have unilateral control as they had historically. And so I mentioned that against the backdrop because the ability of an institution to craft a redistricting process in a compressed period of time depends on how much input and, and negotiation and compromise has to happen over that period. So just as a general rule, I think that the compressed time frame favors insiders over outsiders and favors those who are adept at the redistricting process over those who are um, not organized. And I do think that courts are going to be put into a difficult position very, very soon, within four months, on whether they start becoming aggressive players in the redistricting process or if they are, you know, of the view that, look, we're just going to let what might be a legally questionable gerrymander go into place for one election uh, because they don't feel they have the, the amount of time necessary to correct it. That is like a, a general concern I have. You know, at the same time that there isn't enough time for public participation, there are tools that are now available to the public that enable participation unlike ever before. And so you have all of these data, you know, these websites with, with public interest redistricting programs like Dave's Redistricting App or District Builder or DistrictR.org that really are, are quite good. I mean, 10 years ago, we didn't have these tools at that level. Uh, but I just used one actually for this week for a redistricting that I'm I'm actually doing in the real world um, um, because they got the data first. And so, you know, was able to, to draw a plan for a jurisdiction. And so, so there's all this public participation and, and, and there's not an inconsiderable amount of money that's gone into the public interest redistricting uh, process. And those folks are, are going to try to sway commissions and legislatures. But 
They've only basically got three months to do it. I mean, I, I don't think people don't quite appreciate when we say rushed, there are a set of states that basically have to get their plans done, legally speaking, under state law within two months, right? So you're talking about September and October, uh, then they have to deliver it. And then even if they get somehow some judicial dispensation to extend that time, you know, generally speaking, you work back from the date of the primary election, usually in the spring. So if you're like a garden variety state that has an April primary, you have to have ballot qualification, you know, sometime in, in let's say March, let's say March 1st or so, where, you, you know, the deadline for people to qualify for the ballot, which means you have to have the lines in place at least a month before, if not more, so that people know what district they can run from. Right. And so then you're close to January when these these lines really have to be done. Um, and, you know, we only just got the census data here in mid-August. And, and so uh, it, that's a really, really short time frame in order to, to draw the lines. All right. Let's turn to partisan gerrymandering. So for decades, there was a big question mark as to whether or not courts, federal courts, could hear these cases. There was a case called Bandimer. That case suggested the courts could hear cases, but it, it was a standard that that no state ever failed. And then we had the Veith case in 2004, where Justice Kennedy said, let's keep the door open. I'm, I'm not ready to declare a standard. And then finally, after Kennedy leaves the court, we finally get the Rucho case, where the Supreme Court says the door is closed for partisan gerrymandering. And you hear some people saying that partisan gerrymandering alone will cost Democrats the House of Representatives in, in 2022. How much of a factor do you think it is that partisan gerrymandering is now for sure 100% non-justiciable in federal courts. How much has the, the threat that partisan gerrymandering could have been uh, an issue held back more partisan gerrymanders in the past? Uh, and you know, so how does, how does all of this play out going forward? I don't think um, the threat of a constitutionalized partisan gerrymandering claim was holding people back 10 years ago. I mean, for the most part, if the dominant parties were able to gerrymander, they did and had the appetite for it. They weren't, it wasn't that their lawyers were saying, hey, you might get sued. And let me say that, that there's a larger story here, which is that mo many of these states where you've got acrimony, um, they assume they're going to get sued, right? So, so it's not clear that, that a lot of the legal constraints are preventing that first initial gerrymander that might, might get passed. Having said that, in the wake of, well, in, in, in the process of the Supreme Court uh, stepping aside when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, state courts are filling the void. And so one should expect a greater number of state courts, I think, to, to hear some of these partisan gerrymandering claims and, and maybe uh, strikes them down under their state constitutions. I, but I don't think that, that Rucho has like a a big effect on the number of districts that then, you know, will be gerrymandered this time. Because if you look, I mean, we had some pretty severe gerrymanders 10 years ago. But I do think the Republicans are not in as good a position as they were 10 years ago, just because there are places, as I was mentioning, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that now have divided government so that there is not um, as much room for them to, to gerrymander. Um, but it also depends on what the appetite is for the Democrats in places like Illinois, New York, and Maryland, whether they are going to uh, decide to fight fire with fire, or whether they, they also, they're going to be a, a little more tempered in their uh, approach to gerrymandering. I mean, you know, it's, Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, both gerrymander. The question is where they have more opportunities. 
Well, let's dig a little deeper on this, uh, specifically in Pennsylvania, where you've got a Republican legislature, a Democratic governor, and Democratic-dominated state Supreme Court. Already back in the 2020 election, we had this conflict between the legislature and the state court over whether or not the state court applying the state constitution was usurping uh, the legislature's power under the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. Um, can you foresee that issue coming up again? And before you answer, let me just remind uh, our listeners that back in 2020, the state Supreme Court ordered ballots to be accepted for three days past election day, given COVID and under a claim under the state constitution's uh, protection for the right to vote. And the state legislature sued and said, this is taking away our power to set the date for the election. And and at least four Supreme Court justices seemed to take that argument seriously. It turned out to not be dispositive over the vote in Pennsylvania, uh, but it does seem like it's a ticking time bomb and maybe it plays out in these redistricting cases. So what, what do you think about that? Full disclosure, I was the expert that was hired to help the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in its uh, previous uh, decision, which led to them redrawing the lines for, for Congress. This precise argument was actually made in federal court following the court-drawn map um, and was uh, rejected. Um, but that doesn't mean that it wouldn't come up again. And there are new justices on the Supreme Court since then. Um, and as you mentioned, this is from the Independent State Legislature Doctrine in the presidential sphere that has an analog in Article 1 that would, would potentially be um, invoked here. I think in order to go down that line, you'd have to overturn the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, which there probably are five votes on the court that believe that, whether they be, would overturn it, in part because Chief Justice Roberts actually dissented in that case. And, you know, so he, he probably has some problems with that. But we'll see. I mean, this is the the most difficult case, I think, for the independent state legislature doctrine, which is you've got a state Supreme Court that would be deciding under the state constitution what the right to vote means. And it really does put four square the kind of conflict as to whether state constitutions can constrain state legislatures in their you know, enactment of voting laws. And, and so, you know, if that uh, is overturned by the court, then that is, that is a precedent. I mean, that means that there are a whole lot of, I think, election laws that could be uh, on the chopping block uh, later on. Including those that are passed by initiative, uh, which was the very issue in the Arizona case you mentioned. And I would say, if you go back and you read Chief Justice Roberts' dissent there, that was one of his most bitter dissents. He doesn't dissent all that often where he writes dissent, but that one, he was he felt very strongly on that issue. So, so I think I agree with you. You know, it could come down to the question of uh, respect for precedents and how many precedents they want to overturn in a given set of years. All right, let's turn to minority voting rights. So, uh, as I mentioned at the top, this is the first election season where Section 5 is no longer uh, being applied. That is the preclearance provision. As we're recording, Congress uh, is introducing the Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore preclearance. That's certainly not going to happen in time for this redistricting season. Uh, whether it happens at all is a long shot, but it doesn't seem like it's going to affect this. So we're going in without Section 5, and uh, we're going in with a Section 2 that is not directly affected by Brnovich, uh, which was a vote denial case, not a, a vote dilution case. Um, but uh, Brnovich does show a court that is quite hostile to 
the Voting Rights Act, you, you even have two justices, Gorsuch and Thomas, who believe that Section 2 doesn't even apply to constrained redistricting. So where do you see the protection of minority voting rights this time? And I guess let's fold into that also claims of racial gerrymandering, which used to work, I think, to favor conservatives uh, in the last redistricting season in cases like Cooper versus Harris uh, helped liberals and to some extent helped minority voters. So let's sort of start with um, the DOJ kind of question, which is that DOJ's role without Section 5 is much smaller than it than it ever was. And so they can um, bring Section 2 cases as they've done in Georgia on the on the vote uh, denial front. But they can also bring it on with respect to vote dilution um, uh, in a redistricting case. And they can join in other other lawsuits under, you know, 14th, 15th Amendments. And so I would expect them to choose their targets quite carefully uh, if they are going to get involved with that. You know, there's some interesting issues. You kind of have to unpack and think about each minority group differently, I think, this time as to how the redistricting process is going to play out and what the um, potential is for litigation here to to further uh, the minority uh, group's interests. So for African-Americans, one of the interesting things is the majority of the Congressional Black Caucus is now elected from minority black districts, you know. And so we've come a long way since the 1990s, right, when we were, we, uh, when, when you had the 65% rule that was in effect and you had DOJ asking these jurisdictions to, to draw much more highly concentrated districts. And as you were mentioning, whether it's Virginia, North Carolina, or elsewhere, it's often the case that you are now seeing the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other voting rights groups coming in to prevent the packing, particularly of African-Americans, especially in areas where there are African-American incumbents who do not need an over 50% district in order uh, for my African-Americans to have an equal opportunity to elect their candidate of choice. So that, that's sort of the interesting front where I can see packing being the main threat to African-American uh, representation. Of course, there are still areas where there, there's the opportunity to draw majority African-American districts that haven't been drawn. Um, but one of the things that we've seen is that as you have higher African-American concentrations in the suburbs, it, it's going to be harder and harder sometimes to draw some of those historic majority minority districts. For Latinos, it's actually another story. How, how uh, citizenship data and citizenship issues factor in, that's always, always an issue. But now I think we also have to think about the racial polarization side of, of the equation, which is that, you know, Donald Trump got a lot of the Latino vote in this last election. And that is a kind of different dynamic than I think people were prepared for. Now, the presidential election is usually not the kind of election you use to evaluate whether you have a legitimate Section 2 case. Uh, but I think that there's, you know, um, there, there are going to be interesting questions about what percentages of Latinos in a district will be necessary in order for Latinos to elect their candidates of choice. One would expect, I think, that in Texas, at least one of the two new districts is going to be a majority uh, Latino district. And you see, you know, no surprise that um, Latino population uh jumps are the, the most significant in the last census. And so, you know, when I when I was appointed to help draw the New York districts 10 years ago, that was when Harlem flipped from being a historic African-American district, now represented by Dominican-American 
And, um, you know, there are, there are a lot of places like that. You see certain areas in Los Angeles where you maybe have more uh, Latino uh, uh, opportunity districts. Similarly, so now with Asians, it's, it's actually a different dynamic. Um, I think there are, and I was involved in a, in drawing a plan that settled a voting rights dispute brought by a coalition of Asians and Latinos. There are several places in the country where you could see new majority or significant plurality Asian districts, not for Congress, but, but for state legislatures and other districts. Uh, and then with Native Americans, you know, you, you see in areas of the country where there's real racial polarization, um, right? I mean, Native Americans uh, in many ways are, are, I think, in the electoral system uh, experiencing some of the classic barriers to enfranchisement. But so in those areas, often there's extreme racially polarized voting that can only be remedied by the kind of classic Section 2 uh, remedies. All right. I think the last set of issues I want to hit on is the Evanwell issue. So the Supreme Court in the 1960s declared the one person, one vote rule, uh, but never really told us what the denominator was, whether that denominator is uh, all people, all citizens, all eligible voters. And uh, the Evanwell case, uh, the Supreme Court reached close to consensus in saying that uh, a state wouldn't be compelled to draw citizen-only districts, but left hanging the question, I guess to keep it a nearly unanimous Supreme Court opinion, about whether or not that's a permissible basis for drawing lines. And the thinking behind why some states might try to do this or localities might try to do this is that if you exclude non-citizens, you exclude children, you might be able to draw more districts that would benefit Republicans. At least that's been the thinking uh, in, in certain areas. Um, are you expecting to see district lines being drawn that uh, change the denominator? And how do you think those are going to fare as these issues work their way in the courts? So I don't think we'll see it for Congress and probably not for state legislatures with one caveat I'll mention. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a test case at a local level that tries to use a different denominator. Part of the problem here is that, you know, the, the census data has come very late. It's not clear what other data people are going to be latching onto that will lead them to draw districts. So I, you know, I, I think that that issue will probably come up over the next 10 years, but I don't think it's going to be a widespread issue because the boogeyman that was in the room was that that there was potentially going to be a citizenship question that was on the census that never happened. And so if you wanted to redistrict on the basis of citizenship, you'd have to use the American Community Survey data, which is you know, a survey, um, and you'd have to do averages of that. And as I've written elsewhere, you know, that's going to be a tall order, right, to redistrict on the basis of a survey. But what one thing that we should be have our antenna out for is controversies over the census that are going to emerge in the next few months. Um, you are already seeing a lot of pointy-headed social scientists complaining about the way the census uh, has injected error into the block-level data through something called differential privacy. I actually don't think that is as big a deal as these folks suggest. We've always had an inaccurate census. We've always figured a way to muddle through in the drawing of lines. But for those who are trying to attack both redistricting plans and the data that go into them, you could see active disinformation campaigns over, um, over differential privacy and the, and the census numbers. Could you just explain a little bit more, why would the Census Bureau actually inject error intentionally, as opposed to inadvertent error, which, of course, you know, a, a count of 
300 or so million people is going to not be perfect. Right. So all they had always done this where they did they through various methods, but but just to so people understand what they did this time. Advances in data analysis have gotten to the point that even if you have aggregate data, like you only know you, you know that 20 people live in a particular census block with you know a certain number who are who are over the age of 18 and then you know the aggregate racial data that combining it with other data sets you'd probably be able to identify some of those people and then their responses on the census and since the census has to be confidential the census bureau said we we can only release data in a format that obscures people's identity and the way that we are going to do that is by injecting some errors at that lowest block level. So we will essentially add and subtract people so that you never can figure out exactly um, the, the characteristics of a particular person in that, in that census block. And, and so it's controversial, you know, but uh, it is, you know, it's not the first time that this method has been used. It's something that in the, my other work dealing with Facebook data. It's something that, that we've worked on quite a bit. Um, for social scientists who are hoping that, that want to have a kind of much pure census where you can, you know, make it more look like a head count, they're apoplectic about this. But, but what I've been saying to reporters in particular is that they need to talk to lawyers, right? Because we always work through problems in the census every redistricting cycle whether it's statistical adjustment in the 2000 census or the multiracial checkoff that you could check off more than one race, or whether, how do we prove racial polarization? Do we look at the data, the survey data on citizen voting age population or like, and of course there's, you know, um, the issue of the undercount um, in, in every census. And so it's in court where the state of Alabama has sued to, to remove differential privacy from the census. But you may see some other uh, lawsuits, you know, about this once the redistricting litigation heats up. I just want to ask you just as a personal matter, what is life like for you during this period at the beginning of the decade? As a professor, an election lawyer, and a, a social scientist trying to deal with, with this mad rush? Well, you know, I sort of feel like I've been taken out of the frying pan of the election into the fire of redistricting. And it's, um, I have never had this much business before the courts have gotten involved. And so I'm involved in several states and localities that have needed assistance. Uh, usually, and you know, I don't work for any political party and, and I'm only working for commissions uh, or the courts. And so I'm already, you know, quite, quite busy. Uh, and then once November comes, November, December, we'll see, you know, if I get appointed again, but, but um, I expect there to be a mad dash to try to, to get people. And so this is an incredibly stressful uh, time, <laughs> you know. But as you know, as is, you know, since you are the, the grand poobah of the election scholar community, uh, it's been an incredibly stressful time for some time now, right? We're all waiting for it to ease up. So I take it this you won't be taking on a uh, week-long uh ELB blogging stint anytime in the <laughs> next few months. I, I, I will try my best. I will try my best. Yeah, I, maybe not during the redistricting season, but, but, but you know, it's going to be compressed. It's going to be basically from now until February, and that's it, uh, just because we're going to run out of time. All right, so finishing up, so kind of the top three things, your, your headlines of, of, of what you're expecting to see or what we should be looking for over the next, uh, say, three to 
12 months? Well, first is a set of concerns, litigation, and gripes about the census, and we will get over that. Then I think you'll see um, the, the partisan uh, concerns that will rear themselves both in you know, the legislatures and the, and the bodies that are drawing lines, but then also uh, will be expressed in court. And then the third is how do we think about uh, race and representation uh, given changing political dynamics uh, in this country um, and uh, you know, different levels of racial polarization. And so those are sort of the, the three lenses. Behind all that is the institutional backdrop of rising polarization, you know, the fate of, of Congress hanging in the balance and new institutions that are gonna be drawing lines this time. Well, so recently call you the master. Nate Persley, Stanford Law School, thanks so much for coming on the ELB podcast. Thanks for having me. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the ELB podcast is Melody Rowell. The theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us again next time for the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan. Goodbye.